0: Welcome to Zensylvania. My name is Eric Adrians, and I'll be your host. In Zensylvania, we explore motorcycle zen, literature, philosophy, and a variety of other topics. I'm not an expert in any of these things. In fact, it would probably be a mistake for me to claim to be an expert in anything at all. Here in Zensylvania, we try to maintain a beginner's mind during our explorations. With your feedback and participation, I hope Zensylvania is the kind of place that keeps us, you and I, visiting often. First, I want to say Happy New Year to you, and welcome to the first Zensylvania podcast episode of 2024. If you've followed the podcast, you may be aware that a variety of separate demands on my time meant that last year's podcast schedule was very irregular and inconsistent. Happily, many of those distractions have settled down, and I'm hoping that we can get back to a much more reliable routine. Thank you for your patience and interest as we rode through that rough patch of road. Maybe it's just the usual late afternoon letdown, but after all I've said about all these things today, I just have a feeling that I've somehow talked around the point. Some could ask, well, if I get around all those gumption traps, then will I have the thing licked? The answer, of course, is no. You still haven't got anything licked. You've got to live right, too. It's the way you live that predisposes you to avoid the traps and see the right facts. You want to know how to paint a perfect painting? It's easy. Make yourself perfect and then just paint naturally. That's the way all the experts do it. The making of a painting or the fixing of a motorcycle isn't separate from the rest of your existence. If you're a sloppy thinker, the six days of the week you aren't working on your machine, what trap avoidance, what gimmicks can make you all of a sudden sharp on the seventh? It all goes together. But if you're a sloppy thinker six days a week and you really try to be sharp on the seventh, then maybe the next six days aren't going to be quite as sloppy as the preceding six. What I'm trying to come up with on these gumption traps, I guess, is shortcuts to living right. The real cycle you're working on is a cycle called yourself. The machine that appears to be out there and the person that appears to be in here are not two separate things. They grow toward quality or fall away from quality together. Using the arbitrary changing of the calendar as a personal reset button, I'm back to work on a few projects, including the Zensylvania email inbox. I was delighted to find an invitation to join a brand new Reddit forum called the Lila squad or TLS 2.0 with aims to restart an open online discussion community devoted to Robert piercing and the metaphysics of quality philosophy. Restart is the correct term because an email list which began in 1997 eventually became an online community of this type operating as moq.org. Actually you can still find moq.org in a site called original.moq.org where there are archival versions of some of those earlier conversations. One of the participants, Dan Glover, eventually published a 500 plus page book titled Lila's child in 2002, a few years before the initiative seems to have fizzled out. I want to add parenthetically that I'm not entirely certain whether Lila's child or "Leila's child is the better version of that title, but I'm going with Lila's child based on some research that I've done. I'm glad that Glover published the book, despite the seeming reliability of this digital age. It's comforting to know that even if those early electronic conversations were suddenly to be unavailable to a new generation of interlocutors, there's still a tangible artifact available to consider and review. I purchased that book in 2023 with the intention to give it a thorough reading when time and a new pair of reading glasses permitted. Such are the realities of a midlife study project. We pursue them as resources and necessaries are put in place. By happy coincidence, Lila's child is also on the reading prospectus for the TLS 2.0 group. I don't have much experience with Reddit, and despite a generalized aversion to social media, I joined and look forward to observing what happens with the initiative. I encourage you to join me there and share your thoughts and insights. As I've hinted, 2023 was a challenging year that I'm going to categorize as a gumption trap year. In chapter 26 of Zen and the Art, Persig described the gumption trap metaphor. And while it may be jumping ahead of the Zensylvania progress through the book in the earlier parts of this series, this is an ideal time to devote to that chapter Note that the readings from Zen and the Art that I've included in this episode are not a full start to finish reading of chapter 26. I've omitted some extended passages and even reordered the passages to suit the episode. The point of the podcast is not to provide an audiobook version of Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance. It is to examine insights in Zen and the Art and explore any particular new insights that this 50-year-old book brings to mind. So let's begin early in a chapter where the narrator introduces the concept of gumption traps. Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance, Chapter 26 A sensation of cold wakes me up. I see out the top of the sleeping bag that the sky is dark grey. I pull my head down and close my eyes again. Later I see the grey of the sky is lighter and it's still cold. I can see the vapour of my breath. An alarmed thought that the grey is from rain clouds overhead wakes me up. But after looking carefully I see that this is just grey dawn. It seems too cold and early to start riding yet, so I don't get out of the bag. But sleep is gone. Through the spokes of the motorcycle wheel, I see Chris's sleeping bag on the picnic table, twisted all around him. He isn't stirring. The cycle looms silently over me, ready to start, as if it has waited all night like some silent guardian. Silver grey and chrome and black and dusty. Dirt from Idaho and Montana and the Dakotas and Minnesota. From the ground up, it looks very impressive. No frills. Everything with a purpose. I don't think I'll ever sell it. No reason to, really. They're not like cars with a body that rusts out in a few years. Keep them tuned and overhauled. And they'll last as long as you do. Probably longer. Quality. It's carried us so far without trouble. The narrator talks about waking up to a gray and threatening sky. This passage about the early morning sky serves as a reminder of a rainstorm that the narrator recounted in chapter two, the one that ended a previous motorcycle trip with Chris. You may want to check in on my discussion of that chapter in episode 14 of the podcast. Here in chapter 26, as we're closing in on the end of the book, the narrative is calling out to us to recall how far we've come, and that how far we've come clearly applies in several ways. The motorcycle carries dirt and residue from a variety of states on this particular ride. The narrator has recounted many Chautauquas beginning in the early chapters, And of course, the narrator is also featuring just how far he has traveled as a motorcycle rider and maintainer since that previous trip. The narrator concludes by stating that he doesn't expect ever to sell his motorcycle and summarizes by reminding us that the book is about quality. Quality. It's carried us so far without trouble. Everything with a purpose including these scenic passages, which don't seem to be doing much when we encounter them, but actually they do. I want to take a moment to reflect that the narrator's observation that he expected to never sell his motorcycle is interesting. In my investigation of Persig's life, I recall reading that Persig took up motorcycling when he learned that he would not be allowed to have a pilot's license to fly planes. Riding a motorcycle was the next best thing. If that bit of information is true, it's interesting to wonder what may have occurred if Persig was able to obtain a pilot's license following his ECT treatments, perhaps the book Persig would have been serving up, would have been titled Zen in the art of airplane maintenance. While such a book might have been fascinating in its own rights. I'm not sure that it would have been as elegant as Zen in the art of motorcycle maintenance is. As to the sentiment of keeping a motorcycle indefinitely, it isn't something that I was able to do. I owned and maintained a Yamaha XJ550 for a couple of years, but like so many other vehicles I've owned, I sold it off when it seemed necessary to do so. Perhaps I didn't maintain the gumption needed to stick with the hob. Speaking of gumption, let's get on with the next passage. I like the word gumption because it's so homely and so forlorn and so out of style, it looks as if it needs a friend and isn't likely to reject anyone who comes along. It's an old Scottish word once used a lot by pioneers, but which, like kin, seems to have all but dropped out of use. I like it also because it describes exactly what happens to someone who connects with quality. He gets filled with... With gumption. The Greeks called it enthusiasmos, the root of enthusiasm, which means literally filled with theos or God or quality. See how that fits? A person filled with gumption doesn't sit around dissipating and stewing about things. He's at the front of the train of his own awareness, watching to see what's up the track and meeting it when it comes. That's gumption. Persig admitted that his word choice may seem awkward and dated, and he definitely chose an awkward, old-fashioned feeling word for the concept that he wished to identify and define. As explained by Persig, the word gumption has been tracked by etymologists to Scotland my own investigation of gumption may help to plump up our appreciation of the term. I want to offer some alternative terms that Persic may have chosen, but ultimately didn't go with. For example, boldness, spunk, initiative, determination, eagerness, enthusiasm. Herein 2024, I want to say that the word that resonates most could be courage. The world has seen a lot of change that may have weakened our individual and collective courage a bit. The specifics for each of us may be highly particular and quaint to someone else. In my own case, events and circumstances of 2023 wore down my gumption. And maybe you've had similar times, maybe 2020 or 2021 wore you down a little bit. Regardless of the individual circumstances, there have been plenty of opportunity for our individual and collective courage to have faltered. Politics, finances, technology, employment, social or family matters, health, environment, human rights, artificial intelligence, you choose perhaps because of the old timey and awkward sound of the word gumption. It's not a stressful or serious word. Like some of the synonyms that I mentioned earlier, gumption just doesn't match up to the social issues I've listed either. We generally don't think about gumption and technology or gumption and uh, social or family concerns. We don't think of gumption and maintaining our health. Gumption just doesn't carry the connotative baggage that would make it feel important. Gumption is a word with a lighter heart than courage, where the emotional stakes just don't feel as though they've been set as high. Admitting that my gumption was low last year just doesn't sound as serious as saying that my courage had been worn down, but they're pretty much the same statement. As with other matters pertaining to Persig, I think it's potentially instructive to closely examine what may seem to be arbitrary or inconsequential choices that Persig made when writing the book. You never know what insights may become available in the inquiry. According to the website adamonline.com, the word gumption could be found in the Scottish language in the early 1700s with the meaning of common sense shrewdness acuteness of practical understanding this early meaning of the word is not directly consistent with Persig's use of the term but these meanings are consistent in an adjacent kind of way just as the word quality in its commercial sense is adjacent to Persig's use of the term for his philosophy adam online also indicates the meanings drive, and initiative for gumption. These meanings are completely in line with Persig's use. Well, finally, Edamon Online indicates that gumption may be connected with a middle English word, gom, meaning attention or heed. And the old Norse galmr, which is heed and attention. Looking to a second source, according to the Merriam-Webster dictionary, art historians may know a couple of additional applications for the word. Gumption was historically used to refer to the art of preparing painters colors and as a synonym of McGilp, which refers to a mixture of linseed oil and mastic varnish that is used as a vehicle for oil paints. And while I cannot be certain whether Persick was aware of these cognitive underpinnings of the term, my motivation is to assume that he took the time to research and be aware of the implications of terminology choices. There's little in the selection of the term gumption that is not consistent with the general themes of Zen and the art of motorcycle maintenance, including a connection to art. A third source, the Cambridge definition, provides the strong will and determination to do something. It's the ability to decide what is the best thing to do in a particular situation and to do it with energy and determination. And here we can see what Persig has done in his selection of the term gumption is to choose a lighter hearted term to convey a perspective on experience and situations which trap or undermine our ability to decide what is the best thing to do in a particular situation and to do it with energy conviction and determination but wait a minute gumption clearly has the word gump and a gump is a foolish or a dunce person the early british usage of that word appears to have been catching fish by hand to gump is to grope around for a fish groping while the idea of a foolish person, yes, like Forrest Gump, appeared somewhat later. Gumping, the skill and wherewithal to catch fish with our most fundamental of human tools, our hands, is as pure a notion of self-reliance as you can find. Perhaps the purveyors of technologies, such as fishing nets, rods, and other devices, designed for large-scale fishing, felt some superiority to the lone figures who gumped for their meals, one fish at a time. Perhaps that superiority of attitude eventually led to the negative connotation of gump. That's the way of technological advance. More primitive and fundamental methods of doing things are scorned. They fall by the wayside and are mostly forgotten in favor of the new technologies which... For all their benefits, do alienate those who are happy to gump. The ability to gump, to catch a fish with nothing but your hands and wits, is in fact a craft. And I'll recommend that you consider Langland's book called Craft, spelled C R A E F T. In that book, Langland talked about a number of such crafts that are beyond the vast majority of us in our current technological advanced state. As technology advances, is it not true that, for many of us, it often represents a fundamental and complex disconnection from our gumption? The gumption-filling process occurs when one is quiet long enough to see and hear and feel the real universe. Not just one's own stale opinions about it, But it's nothing exotic, and that's why I like the word. You see it often in people who return from long, quiet fishing trips. Often they're a little defensive about having put so much time to no account, because there's no intellectual justification for what they've been doing. But the returned fisherman usually has a peculiar abundance of gumption usually for the very same things he was sick to death of a few weeks before. He hasn't been wasting time. It's only our limited cultural viewpoint that makes it seem so. If you're going to repair a motorcycle, an adequate supply of gumption is the first and most important tool. If you haven't got that, you might as well gather up all the other tools and put them away, because they won't do you any good gumption is the psychic gasoline that keeps the whole thing going if you haven't got it there's no way the motorcycle can possibly be fixed if you have got it and you know how to keep it there's absolutely no way in this whole world that motorcycle can keep from getting fixed it's bound to happen therefore the first thing that must be monitored at all times and preserved before everything else is the gumption This paramount importance of gumption solves the problem of format of this Chautauqua. The problem has been how to get off the generalities. If the Chautauqua gets into the actual details of fixing one individual machine, the chances are overwhelming that it won't be your make and model, and the information will be not only useless, but dangerous, since information that fixes one model can sometimes wreck another. For detailed information of an objective sort, a separate shop manual for the specific make and model of machine must be used. In addition, a general shop manual, such as Odell's automotive guide, fills in the gaps. But there's another kind of detail that no shop manual goes into, but that is common to all machines that can be given here. This is the detail of the quality relationship, the gumption relationship between the machine and the mechanic which is just as intricate as the machine itself throughout the process of fixing the machine things always come up low-quality things from a dusted knuckle to an accidentally ruined irreplaceable assembly these drain off gumption destroy enthusiasm and leave you so discouraged you want to forget the whole business. I call these things gumption traps. There are hundreds of different kinds of gumption traps, maybe thousands, maybe millions. I have no way of knowing how many I don't know. I know it seems as though I've stumbled onto every kind of gumption trap imaginable. What keeps me from thinking I've hit them all is that every job I discover more. Motorcycle maintenance gets frustrating, angering, infuriating. That's what makes it interesting. I'm not going to set aside references to Forrest Gump and the idea that smart is as smart does. There's certainly very little coincidence that Forrest Gump in that movie became a fisherman, someone who catches fish and makes their own fortune by their own wits and learning. What was important to Persig in the early 1970s and what is important to us now, 50 years later, is not the specific combination of components that frame our gumption traps, but the mere fact that there are gumption traps and ways to avoid or defeat them. If you're facing a gumption trap, rest assured that whether it has been mild or intense, short in duration or long, that there are ways to beat that trap and get your gumption back. Again, politics, finances, technology, employment, health, environment, human rights, AI. You pick the particular concern. There are features of our complex and unreliable contemporary society which serve as a continuous or intermittent drain on our gumption. Zen in the art is sometimes considered as an early example of the self-help genre of contemporary literature. For some this carries something of a derogatory connotation as though self-help is somehow undeserving of respect. I can't say that I'm empathetic with that position. While I'm well aware that some self-help books are indeed highly questionable, that does not mean that self-help isn't a noble and indeed vital thing. Persig was well aware that professionals, such as the mental health profession that he had dire experience of, often deserve as much questioning of their methods and advice as the self-help shelves do. In my own experience, much of Stoic philosophy and indeed Zen is devoted to practical and effective tools for self-maintenance. At one time, the professional mental health sector of the economy may have had some valid claim to objectivity when it comes to helping us deal with the gumption traps in our lives. However, as a 50-something-year-old adult, my own confidence in the objective problem-solving part of that academic pursuit and the economy that follows is very low. In the late 1970s, in fact, just a handful of years from when Zen and the art of motorcycle maintenance was published, my older brother worked for a local barber in our community, sweeping floors and doing other small tasks. That barber was a British fellow who had a collection of old Andy Cap comic strip books in the shop. I'm reminded of a particular strip where Andy and his wife Flo are visiting a marriage counselor that's portrayed as a perky and inexperienced adolescent type figure in comparison to the middle aged and road worn caps. They leave the counselling tutting the presumption and cheekiness of a relative child, trying to tell them how to fix the potholes and traps in their hard-wearing life. I don't tend to suggest that a young professional wouldn't have insights, and that could be useful to the older adults. However, I do question whether graduates of these professions have in recent decades retained the objectivity professionalism and relative freedom from damaging ideology that they seem to have had in past decades. And pertinent to my point, I have every reason to think that a middle-aged Robert Persig or Epictetus or homeless Kodo may have deeper insights and more valuable tools that help in dealing with gumption traps. what I have in mind now is a catalogue of gumption traps I have known. I want to start a whole new academic field, Gumptionology, in which these traps are sorted, classified, structured into hierarchies, and interrelated for the Gumptionology 101, an examination of affective, cognitive, and psychomotor blocks in the perception of quality relationships, 3CR8MWF, good upbringing. It's a fixed commodity. From the lack of information about how one acquires this gumption, one might assume that a person without any gumption is a hopeless case. In non-dualistic maintenance, gumption isn't a fixed commodity. It's variable, a reservoir of good spirits that can be added to or subtracted from. Since it's a result of the perception of quality, a gumption trap, consequently, can be defined as anything that causes one to lose sight of quality, and thus lose one's enthusiasm for what one is doing. As one might guess from a definition as broad as this, the field is enormous, and only a beginning sketch can be attempted here. As far as I can see, there are two main types of gumption traps. The first type is those in which you are thrown off the quality track by conditions that arise from external circumstances, and I call these setbacks. The second type is traps in which you are thrown off the quality track by conditions that are primarily within yourself. These I don't have any generic name for. Hang-ups, I suppose. I'll take up the externally caused setbacks first. The first time you do any major job, it seems as though the out-of-sequence reassembly setback is your biggest worry. This occurs usually at a time when you think you're almost done. After days of work, you finally have it all together, except for... What's this? A connecting rod? Bearing liner? How could you have left that out? Oh, Jesus, everything's got to come apart again. You can almost hear the gumption escaping. There's nothing you can do but go back and take it all apart again, after a rest period of up to a month that allows you to get used to the idea. There are two techniques I use to prevent the out of sequence reassembly setback. I use them mainly when I'm getting into a complex assembly. I don't know anything about. It should be inserted here, parenthetically, that there's a school of mechanical thought, which says I shouldn't be getting into a complex assembly. I don't know anything about. I should have training or leave the job to a specialist. That's a self-serving school of mechanical eliteness. I'd like to see wiped out. That was a specialist who broke the fins on this machine. I've edited manuals written to train specialists for IBM and what they know when they're done, isn't that great. You're at a disadvantage the first time around, and it may cost you a little more because of parts you accidentally damage, and it will almost undoubtedly take a lot more time. But the next time around, you're way ahead of the specialist. You with gumption have learned the assembly the hard way, and you have a whole set of good feelings about it that he's unlikely to have. Anyway, the first technique for preventing the out of sequence reassembly gumption trap is a notebook in which I write down the order of disassembly and note anything unusual that might give trouble in a reassembly later on. This notebook gets plenty grease smeared and ugly, but a number of times one or two words in it that didn't seem important when written down have prevented damage and saved hours of work. The notes should pay special attention to left hand and right hand and up and down orientation of parts, and colour coding and positions of wires. If incidental parts look worn or damaged or loose, this is the time to note it so that you can make all your parts purchases at the same time. The second technique for preventing the out of sequence reassembly gumption trap is newspapers opened out on the floor of the garage on which all the parts are laid left to right and top to bottom in the order in which you read a page. That way, when you put it back together in reverse order, The little screws and washers and pins that can be easily overlooked are brought to your attention as you need them. Even with all these precautions, however, out of sequence reassembly sometimes occur and when they do, you've got to watch the gumption. Watch out for gumption desperation in which you hurry up wildly in an effort to restore gumption by making up for lost time. That just creates more mistakes. When you first see that you have to go back and take it apart all over again, it's definitely time for that long break. It's important to distinguish from these reassemblies that were out of sequence because you lacked certain information. Frequently, the whole reassembly process becomes a cut and try technique in which you have to take it apart to make a change and then put it together again and see if the change works. If it doesn't work, that isn't a setback because the information gained is a real progress. But if you've made just a plain old dumb mistake in reassembly, some gumption can still be salvaged by the knowledge that the second disassembly and reassembly is likely to go much faster than the first one. You've unconsciously memorized all sorts of things you won't have to relearn. And pertinent to Persic's themes. Earlier in Zen and the Art, the narrator explained to his writing companions that he put an end to Chris, his son's visits with healthcare professionals because he didn't feel that they were in a position to help Chris. He didn't feel that they had the deep understanding and capacity to give help the way that kin, another old timey word that Persic used, could. He felt that self-help and the homegrown gumption of kin was what was actually needed. And while I'm loath to repeat the obvious, in this chapter we have a line which serves as a signpost for the entire book. The real cycle you're working on is a cycle called yourself. Persig trusted you, the reader, to apply the underlying principles he explained by the specifics of motorcycle maintenance to the specifics of the make and model of life situation, as it were, that you may be concerned with. When it comes to politics, finances, technology, career, social or family matters, health, environment, human rights, AI, or indeed the maintenance of your prized home or vehicle, do you think you are better off placing your trust and welfare in the hands of professionals? Or are you better off building your own gumption and efficacy do you care that is develop a quality relationship with the make and model of your concerns how many times have you wandered into any professional environment to find the kind of professionals that the narrator encountered in that motorcycle shop that slopped around listened to some tunes and misdiagnosed and mishandled the narrator's concerns right up to the point of breaking the cooling fins off of his prized motor. Do you let their counterparts in parts of your life that are important to you? If one kind of professional can smash the cooling fins off your motor, what can an incompetent professional do to your health, career, finances, or home? In the comic book that I referenced, Andy and Flo Cap understand at a fundamental level that some crisp and clever professional may well be studied up on all the latest information without actually having a clue how to effectively apply that information to their decades-old relationship. Persik's narrator wasn't about to leave the psychologists to metaphorically smash the cooling fins from his son's being. It is possible that Professionals in any given field that you may encounter will have tremendous knowledge and technical competence. It is equally probable that many will not. Some may have tremendous knowledge but little technical competence. Some may be missing knowledge but have terrific competence. Regardless of these situations, what a professional cannot have is a greater stake in what is yours. Persig's suggestion is that this difference should lead to a greater care on your part for what is yours. And even if you make more mistakes and take longer to maintain what is yours, that is your life, your cycle, engaging with that responsibility will increase your gumption, your enthusiasm for what is yours. That is the quality relationship. What Persig would like to see on a course calendar as gumptionology, is how to deal with the things that diminish our enthusiasm for our own lives. How to anticipate, recognize, prevent, and deal with the disappointments, frustrations, mistakes, setbacks, hang-ups of our own and others' making that are, if we're frank about these things, inevitable. This is a question, a central question, of the book. Do you engage the technologies and information available in our ever more complicated times by maintaining your gumption or do you give up that commitment to self-reliance and individual sovereignty and join the others in defeated gridlocked funeral processions that shuffle back and forth but ultimately go nowhere i think we're going to hold it here for this episode and return next time to continue and perhaps conclude our look at gumption traps I hope some of my musings give you motivation to both evaluate Persig's writing style and system of thought, as well as address any gumption traps you may encounter in times to come. Thank you for joining me in this part of Sensylvania. I hope that you've enjoyed your time listening to the podcast as much as I did putting it together. You can find text versions of Zensylvania stories and essays at www.zensylvania.com. That's www.zensylvania.com. I expect to release one new episode each month for the foreseeable future. If you like the content you've heard so far, please subscribe, tell your friends and leave a review wherever you listen to podcasts. I'd also love to hear your thoughts. My email address is zensylvaniapodcast at gmail.com, or you may wish to use the link in the episode description box to leave a voice message, which we might then use in this or a future episode. If you'd like to support the Zensylvania podcast, you can find us on Patreon. Thank you again for joining me in Zensylvania. It's a state of mind.